Al Jazeera Podcasts. What's the risk of India turning into a Hindu nation? Prime Minister Narendra Modi has just presided over the consecration of a highly controversial temple. He says it marks a turning point. But what does this mean for secularism in India? I'm Neve Barker, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. So let's bring in our guests who are all joining us from India in New Delhi. Shazir Ilmi, the national spokesperson for the ruling BJP party. In Lucknow, Shara Pradhan, a political analyst and independent journalist. And also in New Delhi is Nalanjan Mukhopadhyay, journalist and author of The Demolition and the Verdict, a book that offers detailed analysis on the Ram Temple controversy. A warm welcome to all three of you. We have an awful lot to cover during the course of this programme. But India, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Sikh, Jain... It is a patchwork of many, many, many different religions, and that's been part of India's strength over the years, hasn't it? But yet the destruction of the Baba Mosque and this building of the Ram Temple seems to say one thing to non-Hindus, that Modi's brand of Hindu nationalism reigns supreme. Nilanjan, let's start with you. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, well, yes, in a way, it is a fair assessment because uh, this entire agitation which has been waged for about four decades, right from 1984 onwards. It has essentially been about uh, creating a false sense of uh, history of uh, victimhood among the Hindus. And the mosque has been projected as a kind of a symbol of humiliation, which was uh, constructed essentially to uh, you know, downgrade the Hindus during the medieval era. So the temple has actually been said, you know, that the mosque had to be demolished and the temple to be built, essentially to restore Hindu dignity. And the manner in which the agitation was waged and after the um, Supreme Court came out with a verdict after a long delay in 2019, since 2020, August, you know, when construction started in the middle of the pandemic, the entire effort has been actually trying to shore up Hindu pride and make it into a political, uh, you know, use it as a kind of political weapon for the impending parliamentary elections. All right, it let me interject there. Very... Let me interject there. I mean, it's interesting that you call this a, a political weapon. You've referred to uh, a culture of victimhood, you said, on behalf of the Hindu population uh, of India as a way of justifying the rebuilding or the construction of this temple. Shazia Ilmi, you are a member of the BJP. You are also, ironically, a Muslim as well. How do you square this with your faith and your politics? Well, I don't see any issue with it whatsoever. The Ram Temple is for Hindus what the Vatican is for Roman Catholics what the Holy Mecca uh, and Medina and Al-Aqsa Mosque are for Muslims. So surely we understand the ethos related to that and the sentiment re related to that. Whereas for Babur, the, the first Mughal invader, emperor of the country uh, who, uh, in the 16th century when, he made, when his commander made the mosque, I don't think many people pledge any allegiance to that uh, emperor. And also, I don't know why Muslims should be worried about it, because we don't have to pay for the sins of the, of the ancestors or the invaders. This is, it's like saying that all the, uh, you know, uh, all the modern-day Germans should be made to feel guilty at all times about what was done to them by their forefathers and forebearers. 
So I don't see any connection whatsoever with Babur and the mosque uh, he made after demolition of what people believe and what the Supreme Court upholds and what the Archaeological Survey of India also has reported that it was indeed a, a Ram birth, birthplace of Ram, a Hindu temple over which the mosque was made. This was done not just there, and it was, of course, you can't blame Muslims for that, because there has been a history of invasions, and we know how the right. Mughal Empire uh, ruled over India. Let me interject, because there is an issue, there is an issue, and I'd like to turn to Sharat about this. There is it's a very, very big issue when one uses the word invaders, because it implies that there is an indigenous population and that there is an invading population that has less of a right to call themselves perhaps Indian. Uh, Sharad, your thoughts? Yeah, well, uh, I uh, don't consider Babur as an invader today, because Babur was, who, was the one who established the Mughal Empire in India, and they stayed here. They did not come here to, to plunder and go away from here. And thereafter, his progeny was here and they ruled for several uh, centuries so the point point is that to now defame them as invaders is, is a misnomer but but bjp insists on doing that because that serves their political objective you know to brand the him as an invader and to and then reflect it upon common muslims of the country today is what bjp has been doing and that is vitiating the atmosphere by spreading the hatred right. against muslims just one thing let me wish I would like to point out to correct Shalmi Shazi Almi that the Supreme Court never said that there were they had any there was any evidence of a temple being there underneath the mosque. And the Supreme Court never right. said it is a belief. Okay, let, let me, let me interject because uh, let me interject here because there's a lot that I need to unpack for our viewers, uh, Shazia, before we continue. The Baba Masjid, as you mentioned, was built in the 16th century by the first Mughal emperor, uh, Baba. It wasn't for another 300 years until the first dispute is recorded. Then another 100 years after that, the prayers were stopped. And then in 1992, as we heard in our opening report, this Hindu nationalist mob tore down the building and 2,000 people were subsequently killed in rioting. And then more recently, India's Supreme Court has recently given the temple the go-ahead. Shazia, why do you think the Supreme Court has made that ruling? Well, so India is governed by rule of law and uh, the, the various disputing parties and the warring factions, if you please, were asking for their bid. And there was a Muslim side and there were, there were three sides to this in this dispute. And this was sorted legally. And the highest court of the land, which is the Supreme Court, gave a verdict in favor of the temple. It also allocated a large piece of land, up to five acres, for a new mosque to be made for Muslims. The Muslim petitioner, Mr. Ansari, accepted it. In fact, he was there at the and his son was actually there at the consecration ceremony. Now, calling Mughal emperors as invaders is, 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 is same as calling uh, the colonial rulers and people who invade, who came to America and 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 uh, did injustice to Native Americans. So right. I don't well, know. Shazia, I, I think I think the logic I think the logic might be slightly flawed there. It's equivalent to regarding well, no, the Ottomans who invaded Constantinople in the 15th century as invaders. Modern day Turks don't differentiate between invaders and authentic uh, indigenous Turks, do they? I'm not sure about the logic there. No, in India, in no, but in India, they do. 
there is a difference because so many temples were uh, were broken and so many mosques were built on top of it and there was an archaeological survey of india i'm not saying that the supreme court said right. that there was a non islamic structure but shazia shazia i'm i'm very india. very keen i'm very keen to bring in uh, nilanjan here because i'm very keen to reflect upon I'm the sure supreme court's ruling what do you I'm make sure. of this ruling by the Supreme Court, Nilanjan? I mean, it doesn't seem to take into consideration ethnic religious sensitivities. What do you think it says about the necessary checks and balances that exist legally in India at the moment? Well, uh, as far as the Supreme Court verdict of 2019 is concerned, for decades to come, this is going to be one of the most questionable verdicts because the court in its own judgment said that when the idols were forcibly installed in a very stealthy manner in way back in December 1949... We're, we're talking about Hindu idols being installed covertly. Uh, that's right. The Hindu idol being in a stealthily in the middle of the night when it was installed, that was a criminal act. And then the vandalism which led to the mosque being torn down in December 1992, that too was a criminal act and that it was very much a mosque. So despite saying that, they handed over the custody of the place, the land where the mosque had existed to the Hindu parties, primarily on the basis of the possession of that particular land. It needs to be also said, Sazia said, that a piece of land was ordered to be allotted to the Muslim parties, which it was. But so far, not a single brick has been laid there. There is no sign of the mosque coming up. I want to widen this conversation open, if I can. I'd like to broaden this out um, surrounding what many say is a degree of state-sanctioned Islamophobia on behalf of hardline Hindu nationalists in the country. Is this the tip of the iceberg of a protracted policy from Narendra Modi to squeeze out the rights of minority communities? Let me put that to you, Sharat. Well, I, I think you're, um, you hit the nail on the head. It is very evident that this is what is Modi's design. And because that helps him politically, it has helped him all along. He's been able to create a, this euphoria, even through the consecration ceremony, which was focused entirely on him. And he wants the, the world to know that he has, and particularly the Hindus, he wants to impress upon the Hindu minds that it is he who has brought Lord Ram. It, as if to say that Lord Ram never existed. He only brought it. So obviously it is aimed at making heavy political capital out of this whole drama. And uh, I call it drama because you, don't, you do not uh, see any of the values of Ram being imbibed or being or he telling people to imbibe those values. It is only in terms of a symbolic thing so that they can encash on it. And let me also point out, when well, Nilanjan has already explained how the uh, fallacies in the in the in the verdict of the Supreme Court, and there are there in you know there was another in, interesting argument against it that uh, Tulsi Das, who wrote the Ramayan during Akbar's time, in, uh, which is uh, Akbar being another earlier only. Mughal and, emperor, just to explain. Yeah, Mughal emperor Akbar, who was the who was known as Akbar, Akbar the Great, he was the greatest of the Mughal emperors, and is Babur's grandson, and he during his period Tulsi Das wrote this Ramayan. And this is the Ramayan which has uh, right. eulogized uh, Ram as God. 
And Sh he Sharad, Sharad, we, we, we could have an entire program about about we could have an entire program about Hindu theology, which I'm sure. Destroyed we can probably discuss, but I want to focus on, on the politics as well as the religion here, because if history teaches us anything, it's that nationalism, ultra-nationalism, can get out of hand very, very quickly indeed. And the signs are that Narendra Modi is very, very likely to win this next uh, election in India. And one commentator, as we heard in our opening news report, compared what's happening under Modi to, quote, settler Zionism in Israel. Shazia, what do you make of that? No, I think just like the program suggests and illustrates that you have two speakers here who are saying one thing and you have one speaker, which is me, who's portraying or saying the other, the, the, who's giving the other side of the story. I think you should give both sides an equal opportunity to speak instead of giving equal time to all because it would be two thirds. In this case, three fourths because you also come from a bias. And I think what we're seeing more of from whatever comments have been made by the commentators, by your package, by your commentary, by your questions, is that there is a confirmation bias and that you are looking at facts, citing examples, choosing people to make comments only on the basis of what you want to believe. There are civilizational wounds for a community. Can you imagine being in your own country and 80% of a community waiting for a protracted legal battle to claim the place, oh. the birthplace of Lord Ram? which is the revered deity. Can you imagine Sh this happening Shazia, anywhere else? Shazia, you, you, you are on the program precisely to provide the other side of the story. Me and you have given me very little time. Be fair. Do the same courtesy to me. Extend the same courtesy to me that you have done to the other two guests. And let me speak my bit because I'm presenting you the other side. This is one fourth, uh, 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 you know, uh, of the time being taken, which is me. So let me say my bit because three fourths. Yes, please, please get, please get to the point thing. because time is running out rather rapidly. Yeah, the point, so the point I'm making is all that you know, you're banding about a lot of words and a lot of semantics. The truth of the matter is that Lord Ram is the respect, the most severe deity, and there is it's, you cannot relegate Ram to just a religious entity. This is about civilizational wounds. This is about challenging negationism. This is about claiming one's own history. And okay, also okay, Shazia, I've given you a lot of airtime here, and I need to get our all three Thank of you, you to reflect upon Article 26 of the Constitution, where India is described as a secular country with every citizen having the right to profess, practice, and propagate any religions of their choice. Nilanjan, is the Indian Constitution no longer fit for purpose? Well, the Indian constitution definitely is, you know, continues to be in place, but the way it is being actually, the politics is being continued by the BJP, it definitely is not uh, being true to the words of the constitution. Take, for instance, the ceremony in Ayodhya on the 22nd of January. The prime minister was also the priest performing the ceremony, the religious ritual. He also performed the religious ritual on August 2020, also when the new Indian parliament building was both the foundation of it was laid and also when it was inaugurated in May 2023. At that time also Mr. Modi is the one who is performing all the rit religious rituals. Now if the prime minister starts performing every Hindi, Hindu ritual, so, you, so you're, you're, su you're suggesting, Nalanjan, that there is uh, an inappropriate conversion between religion and politics that undermines the secular foundations of the state of India? That's right. I, I believe that, you know, the lines of separation between 
religion and politics and between Hinduism and the Indian states are getting blurred. In fact, they virtually you know, have completely disappeared. And I think this is a grave threat to the secular principles on which India was founded. Right. Sharad, can I bring you on in on that? Because who do you yeah. think is to blame here? What's happened to Congress Party, the party that enshrined a lot of this talk about secularism in the first place? Are they to blame here for not doing enough? Well, I, I, I fully agree with that, that uh, the opposition has been not really aggressive on the issue and they, they have been talking about how the BJP is trying to, you know, uh, maraud the, con the Constitution of India and simply uh, overrun the bulldoze the secular character of the Constitution. Although they speak in terms of uh, talking about Ambedkar, the man who wrote the Constitution, but they want votes in his name also. But they are doing everything to demolish the Constitution. And I wouldn't be surprised if they manage to get a huge mandate which they are targeting in this new election. They would probably amend the constitution also. They changed the constitution because their goal is to make India a Hindu state. And the Congress in particular has not played the desired role to at least to oppose this, even if they cannot do it because they don't have the numerical strength in the parliament. But they have every reason to counter it because they are the ones, the, the Congress party founded the, the, in 1947 when India became independent and Congress has all along, they ruled India for decades and decades, and now that they are cornered by the BJP, they feel, probably, I feel, I have some doubts that maybe the Congress is shy of really playing a very, play, taking it up very aggressively, because they also, somewhere down there, they feel that it might mm. uh, hurt their Hindu vote, because the, in the Modi and the BJP okay. and the RSS, they have converted, they have captured the minds of the people. Shah, I want to return to, to Shazia. Shazia, let me present you with some of these findings by Fact Checker India and Indudva Watch that track hate crimes. They say there have been hundreds of attacks by Hindu mobs against Muslims and other religious minorities. So we're talking about lynchings and beatings and several BJP leaders, members, of course, of your party, including a federal minister, have been accused of getting away with hate speech. Is... Narendra Modi so, emboldening this kind of behavior? So, two things. For, well, let me first uh, uh, rebut the claims made by the two preceding speakers. Uh, first of all, I would like to say that Congress Party has been the most communal party. Muslims have been used as vote banks. The entire politics is based on identity politics, politics of religion. And in fact, in the late 1980s, before the Ram Temple uh, padlocks were thrown open, there was a judgment by Supreme Court giving aid to a woman called Shah Bano. And in fact, it was the Congress government led by Rajiv Gandhi, which overturned the verdict of Supreme Court, passed an ordinance only to please the Muslim clerics, that also the misogyny uh, uh, of, of, uh, and patriarchy of the religion. Shazia, Shazia, you're not answering my question here. No, my my it, question is, has no, Modi emboldened lynchings and violence against non-Hindu minorities? Yeah, I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. If you, if you know, you, you're wasting airtime because you're intervening. I would have come to that. You wasted this much time by interjecting unnecessarily. Go, go ahead. So We're all like waiting. Say, so, so let me tell you, the so Congress party has indulged and has been a very communal party. And this has, and BJP has actually waited, not through an ordinance, but a Supreme Court verdict that this has come. As for about lynchings that you're talking about, 
about hundreds and thousands. I think it's I think it's just so incorrect that you say that. Law in India is a state subject. Different states are responsible. They're Hindus also and Dalits and different and also members of different castes who are killed and it should not happen. But to link it all to Narendra Modi government, do you know when you look at communal rights and, and crime and, and hate hate crimes? They have been much more in the time of UPA2 preceding Narendra Modi government. In fact, the least amount of rights and least amount of killings that have happened in the name of religion. How, how do you how do you explain how Shazia? How do you explain the Gujarat riots in 2002, Shazia? How do we explain the Gujarat riots of 2002 when Narendra Modi was governor of Gujarat, in which 2,000 people were killed in inter-ethnic violence? When Narendra Modi was asked whether he could do anything to stop the violence, he said he. He wished that he had controlled the media a little bit better. What does that say to you about intercommunal yes. relationships? Yes, yes, I knew you would come to that. And let me tell you that where that is concerned, every court in, in India has given a verdict and exonerated Narendra Modi. And there have been riots far more severe, whether the Sikh riots and even riots like Bhagalpur, Nelly where Muslims were killed, because they happened on the watch of the Congress governments, nobody talks about them. Those people who died in those riots were not any less Muslims than who died in the Gujarat right. violence. So I think this is completely cherry-picking and, again, being mischievous. Uh, and this is more, And the two people sitting here are more political activists than, uh, than authors and academics, because right. they are of that mindset. They want to oppose Modi's government because they can't... They know they, they have no chance... All right, Shazia, Shazia, I assure you there's nothing mischievous about, about uh, our reporting here on, on Inside Story. But listen, we are approaching the end of our programme. I want you to reflect on something Narendra Modi has said himself. He said that this is the dawn of a new era for India. Let's start with you, Sharat. What do you make of that? Yeah. Well, the, from the, the connotation that goes, it's very evident that he's trying to tell people that today, and since he also talked about 500 years of slavery, so th which is obviously referring to the rule by his references largely aimed at Muslims, which is Mughals and the other Muslims who ruled the country. They don't, don't talk about the British rule in India, they, but they, his reference to 500 years of slavery and then talking about the beginning of a new era is very evident that mm. what we are in for and that the Hindu Nationalist Party wants to establish a Hindu Hindu state here, and Sh which, is, which is what they are aiming at, Sh aiming to do. And let me just one thing I want to Sh point out: uh, we are coming towards the Modi's end of the program. And the other rights, the, the Gujarat rights were state-sponsored. State was involved in it. Whether whether he got a verdict, verdict uh, from court all, is right. All but three of you have been such great speakers. You have all been so loquacious, I'm afraid. We have run out of time, but it has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Shazia Ilmi, Nalanjan Mukhopadhyay, and Sharat Pradhan. Many thanks. This episode was produced by Mohammed Alaichi, Sarah Gill, Abla Kla, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Sentel Malmuthu. The programme was edited by Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Keneally and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Saturday for our next edition. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, can humans and AI be kin? 
we meet Cree artist Archer Pachawis. I would like to take the AI back to the res and like go to ceremonies with it, right? And teach it about our spiritual protocols in the hopes of deepening our relationship. And theorist Douglas Rushkoff. The AI that we launched was capitalism back in the 12th and 13th century. That is the program that is running. And artificial intelligence is running inside capitalism. Indigenous AI, Unnecessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.